Welcome to the On Target Living Podcast, a place where health and human performance meet. This is a podcast I've been really excited to uh, bring to you guys. I have Dr. Phil Nurnberger, and he's the founder and CEO of Strategic Intelligence Skills. And Dr. Phil, and he's not the Dr. Phil on TV, um, is a, has a PhD in psychology and is a pioneer and innovator in bringing self-mastery disciplines to executive training. And I'll let Dr. Phil give you a little more detail, but Dr. Phil, thanks for joining us. And why don't you give the listeners um, a little insight of how you decided to devote your life to teaching and researching how to use the mind? Well, the mind has always been something I've been very interested in, and uh, that's why I went into psychology. In uh, undergraduate school, they said, well, this is not very interesting to you maybe, but when you get into graduate school, but graduate school wasn't very interesting either. And then fortunately, at the end of my graduate training, when I was working for the university, I met a individual from the Himalayan mountains who was uh, a genuine yoga master. He was the only one who went into a laboratory in the West and actually demonstrated the real power of a genuine yoga master. And I spent the last 50 years studying with this individual. Uh, He left his body in 96, but um, I was with him personally for a long time. Uh, So I studied with him and and the uh, tradition of of Tantra Yoga, which is really all about the mind and focusing and concentration skills. And then I studied a little bit with a Japanese samurai, and then I studied a little bit with a um, Chinese master in in Tai Chi. And the whole purpose of my study was really try to understand how these remarkable individuals could control their body in the ways that they did and understood the enormous powers of the mind that they demonstrated. Um, there was nothing that this, this individual from the mountains could not demonstrate for me. And it was so fascinating to me that I spent my lifetime doing this, but I also found out it was really practical. When I left graduate school, I had high blood pressure and bleeding ulcers. Two years after working with this man from the Himalayas, I was completely free of those diseases. And um, oh, well, I'm 75 now, and I still don't have those problems. So, you know, it's really a very powerful system of understanding how mind and body work together and understanding a little bit deeper of the powerful resources we have in our own mind. And that's what really fascinates me. And, and you were talking to me once, and you kind of were a skeptic. Talk about uh, when you first were introduced to some of this stuff. How did you overcome that skepticism of the well, power of the mind? Well, it was, it was really kind of amazing because, you know, I had gone to graduate school after being in the military. I was in military intelligence for three years. And, um, I, you know, I didn't really uh, take anybody at their word. You always had to demonstrate it to me. And he didn't ask me to believe anything. He just said, take this and experiment. So I learned this very powerful introspective science as a science. In other words, belief wasn't important. What was important was to go in and do the experiment, do the internal research, and see what you found. People get all tied up about the explanatory framework, but that's not the key. The proof of the pudding is not in analyzing the pudding, so to speak. It's in eating it. Sure. So, in, And when you're working with your mind, understanding the ins and outs of your own mind demands a different kind of science, a different approach than our typical approach of take it out and look at it. In other words, we're not using the mind to look at something. We're using our consciousness to study mind. 
And when we do that, we, it comes under several terms like meditation. Mindfulness, I think, is a term people are using a lot now. Um, that's a good start. Mindfulness is still a very light, very, very light approach to study in the mind, but it's also very practical and very useful. But there are deeper systems of meditation that take you into the mindset. You can be creative when you want to be. You can be instinctual when you want to be. You can be insightful when you want to be and not just waiting for it to happen. The key to that, if you don't mind me just talking yeah, here. Yeah, keep going. The key to that is our power of focus. You know, if you think about it, you can think about the very different skills that you bring to your work that allow you to be successful. And when I ask an audience that, I get a lot of different answers because there are a lot of different skills. But rarely do I hear the right answer because the day you can't focus your attention, none of those other skills work. The most critical personal skill we have is our ability to focus attention. We do not train our children in how to do this. And that's a serious mistake in our education process. Well, I'm going to come back to that question. I, you keep talking about the mind. Why don't you give us the explanation between the difference between the mind and brain? Because I think people um, use those and reference to those things as one or the same. Why don't you give an insight of the difference between the mind and the brain and then the connection yeah, this, to the body? This is a fascinating, fascinating thing here. You know, Western science has been trying for over 150 years to locate consciousness in the brain. And yet we're now technologically so sophisticated that we're bringing people back from death. And there are, there are documented cases, there is good evidence that consciousness survives death. There's, no, there's been no question about that for thousands of years from the tantric traditions. But for Westerners, this is still a bit of a confusion. Brain allows us to operate within the field of mind. Mind is not a thing. Mind is an energy field. And it is separate from the brain. The brain actually creates the field that allows us to penetrate mind. So mind is different than brain. Now, I know Western scientists have a problem with that. But they haven't done the introspective science in order to verify that for themselves. There's another confusion that we have. People think mind is a soul. Uh, and let me use the term soul because I don't typically talk about soul. I talk about consciousness. Consciousness is not the mind. The mind is a field of energetic forms or thought constructs. Those thought constructs may be thoughts, they may be images, they may be sensations. These are all created within the neural network of the mind, but they don't remain there. They remain in the mind field, the individual mind field. So this is a real sophisticated analysis of thought, thought constructs, mind and brain. Human beings are the only living creatures that have the frontal lobes that allow us to penetrate this mind field as a conscious action. Not as an unconscious action, but as a conscious action. So mind, when we talk about the mind, there are levels of awareness within mind. Most people operate out of the unconscious mind. What we're really conscious of is just the surface of the mind. So if I can separate some terminology just to get us clear, if I'm conscious of what's going on, I'm aware of it. But I'm not aware of what the bottom of my left foot feels like until I pay attention to it. Mm. At that moment, I can become aware of it. 
but I can't become aware of the way my liver functions. That's totally in the unconscious. Most of our habits reside at the unconscious or subconscious level. So by the time we're conscious of something, actions have already been taken. We're already down the road, and uh, we haven't really made a choice here. Okay, now let me get practical with that. For several years, I ran a clinical biofeedback program in a neurology center. It was one of the first ones in the, in the United States to, to operate in a clinical way like that. And we were very successful. The neurologists would send me the patients that they've had headaches for 20 years. And most of the time, these were what we call tension headaches. Within a few weeks, these tension headaches had completely disappeared and would never come back because what we did was make people conscious of the mechanism that was creating the pain for them. And most of that was simply muscle tension. Um, if you're not aware that your muscles are tense, they, be, they remain tense until they send a message to the brain that there's pain there. Now you pay attention. But that's the consequence of that muscle being tense for a long time. All we did was make people aware of that tension so that they knew when it was beginning to happen, they eliminated the tension, and of course the headaches went away. So the key is, what are you conscious of? What are you aware of? It, if I'm aware, oh, go ahead, Matt. No, no so it, you're saying you're trying to go up, up the stream uh, before waiting for it to happen to you. Yes, you want to. You want to come back. You know that's what I like. You know, I you worked with your dad for years. I love it because he says, "Go to the source." And here I'm saying the same thing. Go to the source. Come back and pay attention. Why do you wait for that muscle to be so, or that, or the blood pressure to be so high? You end up with high blood pressure, which is a disease that creates all sorts of other problems. You can be aware of that blood pressure. And say, wait a minute, I'm feeling tension inside. I'm feeling this tension that indication my blood pressure is rising. I need to back off, work with my breathing, work with a little relaxation, stop letting my mind disturb me, and I can eliminate the blood pressure. And that's self that's self-mastery. You're you're taking control of yourself. That's right. We have enormous control systems inside of us that we're not aware of, so we don't get to use them consciously. So whatever habits we have. That's what regulates the control systems. So if you have a habit of getting angry when someone says things in a certain way, you don't have any ability to choice because you don't have the ability to regulate thought. Mm. So you talk about skills, and that's the name of your company, Strategic Intelligence Skills, and the skill of self-mastery and controlling yourself. How important is this skill for success and happiness? Because I think those are the two things people are chasing. And when you put it in the practical terms, if you can master this skill, you know, everyone wants the tangible thing. If you can master the skill of the controlling your mind, success and happiness are so much easier. When you use the word skill, what are you trying to convey to people? A conscious habit that brings you success. Conscious we have, habit we that have brings habit. you success, okay. Yeah, we have habits that are that are really that really interfere with us. You know, and let's go back to the very simple thing. First of all, you need to have the means to create an internal balance neurologically. Stress is something I've worked with since the mid 1970s, and and I've worked with corporations with since the mid 1970s. Because we simply don't understand the control systems that allow us to be relaxed. 
So at the first level, we have to work with the neurological systems that control stress in the body. This idea that stress is good and bad is really nonsense in my way. It's like saying there's good heart attacks and bad heart attacks. <laughs> I guess there are if you get to survive a heart attack. That must be a good one, right? <laughs> Who knows? But it doesn't give you control, see? If we look at stress as internal imbalance, I need the question is, well, what creates that imbalance? And that's with a very powerful autonomic nervous system. If I know how to work with my breath, I can begin to control that autonomic nervous system. It's not unconscious. It's only unconscious because I haven't paid attention. Mm. So by working with my breath, changing chest breathing to diaphragmatic breathing, I reestablish neurological balance inside the body and make my respiratory system more efficient so I'm not working as hard. So stress is a very simple thing, but that's at the physical level. Most of the stress that we create is not, does not come from outside. It's not what someone says or does. It's what we say to ourselves about what they say or done. Very few people know how to regulate their thought processes. So when we create anxiety, we are creating a form of fear. Fear is something that always happens in the future. You never worry about what is. You only worry about what if. What are the consequences going to be? So that puts your mind in the future and your body in the present. You're already in a state of imbalance. By not learning how to control thought, direct thought appropriately, and it's not difficult, right? You constantly create fears and worries that disturb the system. You actually work harder by your mind on the body than any physical work that we do. Most people don't do hard physical work, but their mind creates such stress and tension in the body that it feels like you have. And so, so, so right there, let's talk about like the current state. I, I would just from watching and observing our current status of the self-mastery, it feels like it's getting worse. Is that accurate oh, or is, it, is there something oh, I'm missing here? What, what's happening? No, I think, I think it's getting worse. And, and you know, the problem is we're not educated. We're just simply, when we don't educate our children, we tell our children to control their emotions, but no one shows them how. We tell our children to pay attention. No one shows them how. The question is not information. The question is skill. And that requires training. We don't do the training, and we expect people to do more. Look, at everyone carries a phone in their pocket that any fool in the world can disturb them with. Right. Doesn't make any sense. Right. So, get, so how do we search shows what, that if you're working? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So, so kind of keep going on that. What What is the skill we need to teach? You know, let's just say I got a third grader. What would you teach them? First of all, I teach them how to listen and, and be curious about their own body and their own mind, mm. not to condemn and not to judge, but simply to pay attention. And they would gradually with play with children, you don't go to a sophisticated meditation technique, a very sophisticated breathing technique that we do in, in, the, in the meditation practices that we have. But you teach them how to work with breath. You teach them lay down and show how to do relaxation. You show them how to say, look, honey, instead of reacting like this, I want you to stay calm, time out. We're going to work with your breathing. I can't tell you how many teachers we taught breathing to die simply diaphragmatic breathing they started working with their children the kids would come in and say can we do our breathing now so we can be more comfortable 
So as it's a, a simple thing, as a teaching PhD working uh, in higher education, what are they scared of to teach children, high schoolers, college students, uh, employees? What are they scared of? I don't think they're scared of it. I don't think they know. They don't do it themselves. Right. They don't do it themselves. Diaphragmatic breathing, give, give me an example. Diaphragmatic breathing is absolutely necessary if you don't want high blood pressure. If, you, if you're a diaphragmatic breather, the chances of you getting high blood pressure are extremely small because chest breathing, what we call normal breathing in this country, creates the conditions for high blood pressure. It's, um, chest breathing is the body's emergency breathing system. Our natural breathing system is diaphragmatic breathing. These people don't know that. I can watch professors, and the professors don't have control of themselves. How are they going to teach other people to have control? Mm. We don't learn this from the very beginning, and that's the issue. So we're so not, we're, yeah, we're not learning it. But what what's happening in our environment? So you got social media twenty four seven. What yes. does this create on top of the lack of education and learning how? Well, every time that you're focused on something. And you get interrupted with an email or a phone call or someone walking in your office, it takes 15 to 20 minutes to get back to the same level of focus that you had before you were interrupted. Mm. How many times do people go to their email every day? The thing chimes and you immediately pay attention, takes you away from the focus. We are so superficial in our thinking, we don't take the time and the stillness to get to our own internal wisdom. We are allowing ourselves to be distracted by all the external changes going on. And we're in a time of dramatic changes, technologically, socially, politically, everything. And so if you're constantly so distracted and this then uh, manifests itself into anxiety disorder or whatever the disease is. What yeah, because where does your mind go? Your mind, you have no control. No you have no way to get to the stillness and your wisdom, your knowledge, your understanding depends on your ability to focus and focus demands that you have to be still. You have to know how to be quiet. You got to learn how to work. See, mindfulness, this is a good thing about mindfulness. Is as, as uh, light as mindfulness is, it's a good thing because people are learning how to simply be a little bit present to what is. So that their mind is starting to calm down a little bit. People don't know how to regulate their thought processes. So they don't know how to regulate their emotions. And in work, for instance, in the work that we've worked with, you know, and you and I have both worked in the sure. financial field for a long time. This is relationship-based. All work is relationship-based. Life is relationship. We can't regulate our relationships because we can't really re regulate ourselves. Right. Right. So too much demand. Too much demand. And so you're so we're in this state of chaos. People are more stressed than ever and, and they're reacting to stress worse than ever. They're more anxious, they're depressed. The mental health uh, topic is becoming very popular. Actually, um, the last several months, for the first time ever, some professional athletes are coming out talking about their struggles with depression and anxiety and, and quieting the mind. What's a simple start of um, somebody that's maybe going down that path where medication, it looks like it's the only option? Where do they begin to kind of peel back the onion? How do they start to quiet the mind? Step one, diaphragmatic breathing. 
relearn diaphragmatic breathing. We all come into this life breathing with the diaphragm. In fact, infants can't even breathe with the chest yet. That takes a while to develop. But diaphragmatic breathing creates neurological balance in that very powerful autonomic system. The moment you feel anxious, you lay down and you put your hand on your stomach and you focus on even rhythmic diaphragmatic breathing, very smooth, very evening, you'll find that the anxiety begins to dissipate immediately. Now that's to start, but the next thing is to learn how to regulate thought processes. Mm. And that's, you know, you and I have talked about this before, the breath awareness. And I think your own experience is now where breath awareness is beginning to show you. And, and I'll say, Matt, that you're just, as long as you've been working with it, you're just beginning. Beginning, I've right. I've been at this for almost 50 years, and I feel like I'm just scratching the surface of the real power that's hidden in here, that's hidden by the agitation that we create in our mind, that monkey mind that needs to jump from limb to limb to limb all the time. Talk about monkey mind, because I actually read an interesting book. I didn't tell you about it uh, yet, but it's called um, The Monkey Mind. Actually, I have it right here. Let's see what the exact title is. But it was very, you know, it's the same teaching, obviously, when you talk about it's don't feed the monkey mind. Um, what is the monkey mind? Why, why does that terminology used in your, uh, your profession? Well, <laughs> the monkey mind to me is a mind that doesn't have, you don't have any control over the direction of it. <laughs> mind is a vast reality that we can't control, but we can direct it. So when my mind, when someone stimulates an unconscious action in me and uh, you know uh, hits one you know we get your one of your buttons gets pressed sure the first thing that comes to your mind is some reaction okay we can't necessarily stop that but i don't have to take that one reaction and build a house with it in my mind and then build a village around the house and then build a whole city with skyscrapers of emotional disturbance i can immediately go to breath awareness clear my mind of all thought refocus my attention on what's going on, and I don't create anxiety for myself. If I don't create the anxiety, I don't have an anxiety problem to solve. People don't get the basic training and self-control they need to manage their own emotional intelligence. Right. And that's the problem. You know, business problems are not difficult to solve. They take creativity, they take time, and they take understanding and clarity. Ego problems are never solved. And these are the ones that drive us all crazy in any business operation. Well, and that kind of leads me to my next question. When we were together, you were talking about the four basic desires that all of us have, and that can play into this ego problem. Why don't you talk about the four desires that we all are built yeah, with? Yeah, and uh, we have actually, uh, they're not desires, they're really primitive needs or needs. built into sure. the system. Right. Sure. We need self-preservation. Okay, it's very powerful. Food, sleep, and sex. These are the primary drives, and they're, they're built into the physical system. Every human being, every living creature has these four primitive drives. Now, when one of these drives, uh, drives is activated, say you're hungry, right? The mind goes to thinking about food. So we find something to satisfy that drive. So the desire is for something to eat, right? And desire is a motivator here. But the problem is not that we need something to eat. The problem is not that we have sexual drives. The problem isn't that we need to protect ourselves. The problem is in the ways that we've chosen to satisfy these kinds of problems. So, for instance, I love cherry pie, man. I mean, that's, that's, I've always loved cherry pie. So, 
I go to work and I'm working with your dad and I'm Chris and we're, we're going to take a break and somebody said, hey, Dr. Phil, we know you love cherry pie. My wife makes some pie and I bought it for you. It's waiting back there for you. Mm. So when, when we're on break, you can have a piece of that cherry pie. And I said, oh, man, thanks. That's really great. So I finished up real quick. I start talking faster and I end up my presentation. I said, OK, we're going to take a quick break here. I go back and your dad ate my piece of cherry pie. <laughs> right. Well. If I have no control, I'm going to blow up on the poor guy. But if I really have the ability to say, what, you ate my pie? Clear my mind, refocus my attention. Okay, what else have I got to eat here? Sure. You see, I'm not driven by that first impulse that creates that desire that leads me to difficulty. So there's a subtlety here, Matt, that's really interesting. And this is difficult. And it's not something that comes easily for anybody. But learning what we call non-attachment, learning that all the things of the world are for you to use, nothing is for you to own in your mind. Because what you own in your mind owns you back. Give you an example. If it's only my way, and this is the only way that I can see it has to be done, people who work for me are going to have a very difficult time being productive. Because it's my way or the highway, so I don't get their creativity, I don't get their input, all sorts of things happen. I get resentment, I get anger, all sorts of things happen. But if I'm saying, oh, this is my way I do it, how do you see it? Can I be open to that? I don't own my idea, it's an idea I can use. Hmm. Do you see the difference? Right, subtlety there. That's a very powerful, subtle event that I see occurring over and over again. People don't have the freedom to be free from their own thought processes. So talk they about... They have to own it. Yeah, go ahead. They have to own it. They have to have that subtle... They have to own it. That's their identity. That's who they think, oh, I'm important because I have this idea. No, no, that's, that's not true. You're just important because you're who you are. That's all. And you talk about ego and that first... Uh need that we have of of survival where does yeah self-preservation self-preservation where's where's the ego play in that and, and how do you avoid and uh change that that mind shift that's that ego self and, and here we're getting to something that's very very deep okay and and the deeper we go the more power we have but when I sit down, and this is where meditation becomes so powerfully important. One, meditation allows us to become a witness to the mind so we begin greater and greater self-understanding. You take a test, that's self, not self-knowledge. That's comparative knowledge. You compare yourself with other people's answers. That may give you a little insight to you, but no power. If I attend to myself, if I pay attention, I actually see how my mind works, I have the freedom to do something different because I have awareness of the patterns and habits of the mind. Self-awareness is everything. Meditation leads to that. So as I go deeper into meditation, I begin to realize that I'm not really the thoughts. Mind thinks, but I'm not those thoughts. That gives me the freedom not to be, not to be corralled, not to be um, owned by the thoughts that come across my mind. Because I don't have, you know, all the thoughts. I didn't choose all those thoughts consciously. They were built up over a lifetime. And some of those thoughts aren't very productive for mm -hmm. me. I mean, you know, if, if everyone knew our private thoughts, we'd all be in jail. Okay? <laughs> but, you know, we don't act on those thoughts because most of us have some self-restraint, self-control. But we still identify with the thoughts. So we get a thought, oh, I'm not good enough. 
Once a child believes that it can't, it's not smart, it becomes not smart. That child actually acts out that belief. Beliefs are never true. Beliefs are only beliefs. They're, they're temporary shelters we stand on while we expand our knowledge base. But people believe their beliefs to be true, and that's the source of a great deal of discontent in our culture. Mm. Wow. Thoughts, thoughts I, are tools for us. Right. I, I love that. And so, so when we, when you t- let's hit on stress uh, one more time. Um, sure. Um, you, that's you, a big thing. Yeah, big thing. People are stressed out. They're reacting to stress in many different forms. Give the simple definition of what stress is and how you want people to think about stress in the future and, and how they can react differently. Stress is an imbalance in the autonomic nervous system. And anytime that system goes into an imbalance between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic, and there are a lot of ways we can create that imbalance. Diet will do it. Diet will create a neurological imbalance, and you get stress from the way, from what you eat, how you eat, when you eat, right? If you don't understand that process, um, difficult situations, too hot, too humid, too dry. These can create imbalances within the system too. That gives us a little stress. But most of the stress that we create is created by the way that we think. And again, that creates the imbalance we call stress. So I don't ask the question, what's good stress or bad stress? When I begin to feel a little bit tense, I say, wait a minute, how am I creating an imbalance here? Then I'm not even interested in how I created it. I'm more interested to say, what do I do here? Mm-hmm. And what I do is go to my breathing, watch how my thoughts are back off my thought field a little bit, and refocus my attention on something useful for the mind and for my body. And when people when people say you need stress, you know, and you've you've answered this many times for me, but answer for the listeners when people say you need stress, what what do they really you mean by that? Need, and what you, what do they re- what should they really be saying? You don't need stress, you need arousal. Mm. That's different. Arousal that is balanced, that's in harmony with action. Is never stressful to the system because of maintaining the harmony within the system. But actions and arousal that overstates, that overdoes, that creates an imbalance between the th- thoughts being in the future and the body being in the present. Now you've got an added emotional, add fear to that. You've got a imbalance in the system and that arousal becomes toxic to the body. So it's not arousal, it's imbalance in the arousal that creates the disturbance. Love it. So let's let's leave the listeners with your three exercises coming out of here to help to uh, minimize that mind chatter, as you call it, to quiet the mind. What are the three exercises anybody listening can practice right away? Okay, first of all, let me say that they've listened to you and your dad and they've got their diet and clear. Sure. Okay? okay. And all that because that's foundational as well. Sure. First one, diaphragmatic breathing. Putting your hand on your stomach at night when you go to bed for 10 to 15 minutes and focus on even rhythmic diaphragmatic breathing. If you put 8 to 10 pounds of weight right where that hand is, over, reaching up from the navel up to your chest, right, where the area where the diaphragm will move and push against the internal organs and push them out, put a little weight there, you're strengthening the diaphragm, and that will change the way that you breathe in, the, in a few weeks. Everybody's a little bit different depending on how much they practice. Okay. But that's absolutely essential. Second, breath awareness. 
to begin to direct thought and clear the mind of unneeded and unnecessary thought. And all you do there is feel the coolness and warmth at the opening of the nostrils. You don't think about the breath, and this is important. You feel the breath. So you shift from thinking to pure perception. At the same time, this begins to open your awareness to your entire perceptual field and you begin to develop a greater sensitivity which increases your ability to use instinct. Third, and this is where people are finally starting to do it, practice some form of meditation. Mindfulness is a simple one to do. It's a nice beginning step to do. It's very helpful. But if you really want to go deeper and open up the intuitive knowledge, you have to get a penetrative meditation practice where you go inside and focus on a single point over an extended time, effortless and without interruption. That takes skill and practice to work. But these three things, diaphragmatic breathing, breath awareness, and meditation. Given that you're doing your exercise sure. and you're getting sure. good, okay, that's you we're, we're a holistic. We, we're we're a holistic person. You have to deal with yourself holistically. You can't just do one thing and think it's going to work. So one one subtlety, and I think this is really critical, and for most of us that aren't educated, what's the value of uh, the inhalation and exhalation through the nasal passageway. Talk about that because I just find that fascinating that I believe most people don't realize. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's such a fun thing to do is to demonstrate that happens when your mouth breathes and when you breathe through the nose because when you breathe through the mouth, you'll lose maybe anywhere from 10 to 20% of your physical strength. And that's because of the change in the neurological patterns inside the mind. The nose is not simply twin exhaust pipes for the lungs. The nose is a sophisticated neurological organ that sends messages to the entire nervous system. So when you breathe with the mouth, you change the neural patterning in the body. Nose breathing, nose breathing, nose breathing. Mouth breathing is unhealthy for you. Unless you need it for exercise or... Well, if you're, yeah, if you're exercising and running and something, then you use your nose, your mouth, your ears, and everything else you can get. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's appropriate. No, I but, thought that was. I thought that was very from an educational piece. Um, when you experience the difference and know why, you know, knowing the why behind it, really powerful. I want you to um, end with kind of your explanation of everyone's so obsessed with technology and artificial intelligence, and we're going to be replaced. But I, I believe there's three things, or you say better than most. What are the What are the three things human beings can never be replaced? Uh, by technology? Well, this is, this has become an open question in my mind. Um, but right now, the way it seems to me, the human mind is vast. It's vast. It's an almost not, not really, but almost infinite library of knowledge because it's not just our individual mind. It's the total mind field that we participate in. And I don't think that you can get artificial intelligence to do that because there's no consciousness in artificial intelligence. Whether or not consciousness can invade artificial intelligence at some point, that's a beginning to be an open question for me. But consciousness is the power. Consciousness is the soul. Consciousness is the intelligence. So I don't think that we will ever see in our time, anyhow, robots that will have human capacity because we have the ability to go beyond time and space. 
I've seen it demonstrated. I've had experiences. I can take my mind and have taken my mind to places where my body can't be mm. and still have full, accurate knowledge of what was going on at that place. And you talk about creativity and compassion and all those things that... That's right. I don't see, I don't see an artificial intelligence that yet can do that. Right. But human, the human mind is, is, a, is a wonderful thing. So we're just, we've got to realize that we're, just, we're at the beginning of our evolutionary era. We're not at the end. Right. And that's, and that's the curiosity and how we're going to learn and teach people how. We have to be more curious. We can't say that we know all this stuff because the mind, the mind is very under-researched uh, and taught. And we got to realize it's if it's close to an infinite ability and capacity, it's going to take a long time or maybe never to really truly understand it. Western psychology has n has no knowledge about mind at all, as far as I can see. But I'll tell you one thing. Let me leave with this one thing. Yeah. The greatest gift we can give our children is the gift they already have of curiosity. Our educational system should stimulate curiosity, not provide answers. If we do that, we're going to do very well.